in December, I was with about 400 other faith leaders in San Diego as part of an action called Love Knows No Borders. We walked to the border wall in Tijuana, a wall that is built, you may know, a good distance into the ocean. The strong waves and the soaring birds mocked the lie of the wall, seemingly echoing our chant, love knows no borders. As we got close to the edge of the beach, our organizers and leaders stopped us for a moment of remembrance to ground us in our purpose and the life and death reality that was, is represented at that place by calling out in, in a traditional form the names of some of those who have died making the treacherous journey. In a traditional way, the name would be called and then we would respond, presente, presente. It took about five minutes for us to honor the names on their list back at the beginning of December. I am aware that since that time, at least two names need to be added to our remembrance. Jacqueline Call, age seven. Presente. Philippe Gomez Alonzo, age eight. Presente. Between the lesser and the greater evil, choose neither. Between two children, choose both the child from the United States and the child from Guatemala. Between despair and hope, choose hope. It will be harder to bear. I love the poet's challenge, and I think the most important thing the poet is reminding us is that we are always making choices. Day in, day out, we are choosing. But I'm caught short by this last phrase, that hope will be harder to bear. I have to say, and I don't think it will surprise you, I am tempted by despair. And it is pretty hard to bear. In July, shortly after starting my work with UUSC, I was in Ajo, Arizona, with 60 faith leaders. We learned there about the brutal conditions many in Central America face and the way our government has weaponized the desert as a deterrent. Last year, you may know, the remains of 128 people were found there in that desert, and those are only the remains that have been discovered. Many more remain unaccounted for. How do we not despair when deadly deterrence is policy? Our group, we, we only walked about a half a mile into the desert, and then we did have to walk the half a mile back out, but not very far in the desert. 
and we went more as a show of solidarity, but we left water. Between us, we left 125 gallons of water, which we hope might provide a life-saving drink to someone who would come across it in the desert. It was important for some of us, I, I having never been to the border before that or, or to the desert to see what it was like, to actually experience what it felt like to be in that place. It, it reached 110 degrees by noon. The, the water was heavier than I imagined, just carrying two gallons to leave and a gallon for myself to drink for just that one mile of walking. We left love notes on the jugs of water in Spanish. We see you. We want you to survive. Our nation is more than deadly deterrence. The heat was a physical assault. I could feel it in my body, and I knew in that moment how dangerous it was, how a person could become very sick and indeed could die there. And so it's not unreasonable to ask, as many have, why would anyone make a days-long journey in those conditions? Why would a parent risk their child's life for that journey? Last month, on another delegation to Honduras, um, some UUSC representatives were meeting with our partners there, and one of our guests, um, one, one of the members of the delegation, actually asked one of our partners this question, why would anyone make this journey? And she just shook her head and said, they have no choice. The risk to their lives is immediate here. How do we not despair when our leaders are lying about almost everything related to Central American migration? So you may know that we went to Ajo this summer in response to a request from our partner, No More Deaths, one of the humanitarian assistance organizations that provides this water and food and clothing and support for people making this difficult journey. They asked us to come in solidarity with their volunteers. Do you know who have been criminally charged? Have you been learning about this case? Have been criminally charged for leaving water in the desert. Humanitarian assistance, now a crime. And we know now that just three weeks ago, maybe four, four of those volunteers who were charged have been found guilty and will be hearing their sentence in a week or two. We learned this week that four of the others have had the charges dropped against them. I'm very glad to say that the public outcry has been strong. But one of the volunteers, Scott Warren, his trial is in May. He faces felony charges and the possibility of 20 years in prison for harboring illegal immigrants. No More Deaths, our partner there, is pretty sure that this, um, this targeting of their work was the result of their drawing attention to the actions of Border Patrol and Fish and Wildlife officers who were actually discovered going through the desert and emptying the water that had been left. Slash, slashing the, 
the, the jugs of water so that there would be nothing there to help those in need. In a 2017 report, 415 times were discovered when water was vandalized, accounting for 3,500 gallons of water that might have saved lives. How do we not despair when officers of the law are committing inhumane acts in the line of duty? Earlier this month, our board um, and I, we were in Tucson and we met with some of our partners and heard from Parker Deegan, who is one of the volunteers who just had the charges dropped. She wrote a beautiful piece in, um, on CNN.org, um, kind of lifting up the irony that some of the laws that they're using to charge the volunteers are the wilderness protection laws. Parker has been a wilderness and conservation activist, and she closed her piece on CNN.org with this beautiful expression of hope. Someday I hope to walk out into the wilderness in southern Arizona without the fear that I will encounter someone in distress or the body of someone we were too late to help. I hope to walk without helicopters circling overhead and armed agents driving past. I hope to feel at peace in the beauty of the desert once more. How do we not despair when humanitarian assistance is criminalized, when compassion is made a crime? They want this. The forces of hate and division, they want us to fall into despair. They want us to be discouraged and afraid. They know our discouragement will lead us to believe that we are powerless, resign ourselves to the fact that there's nothing we can do to make a difference. In Alaska this October, UUSC brought together our partners from around the world who are facing indigenous communities and leaders who are facing immediate displacement due to climate change. The first day, each of the groups told their story, devastating stories. Some have already been displaced. Others are counting the weeks or the months or the years until their entire communities, all that they know of home, will be lost. Their culture and their identities tied so deeply to the land, so much at risk of being lost. They have been resilient, creative, and filled with hope in their work. They don't have time for despair. The leaders presently, present boldly acknowledge that the solutions needed would arise from that room, from those connections, from that wisdom and courage. And they've in turn told us at UUSC they need us to partner, partner with them to demand national and international responses that include their voices, their experience, and their leadership. It's a it was a remarkable experience witnessing this potential of our shared work there in that gathering of leaders from around the world. Day after day in our work, we have the privilege of witnessing leaders and activists who choose hope, 
And as I think of them, I begin to understand the poet's challenge. Hope is hard to bear because it always comes with heartbreak. The hope I witnessed and experienced with indigenous leaders in Alaska only arose after the broken hearts, the story of devastation of their communities. In Arizona, the hope only dared peer around the corner after witnessing the broken heart of volunteers who will not stop until there are no more deaths. Hope is harder to bear because it leaves our hearts open and vulnerable. It means I can't turn my back on the suffering I see in the world. I cannot walk away. And hope means my heart will be broken again and again. Despair, my friends, diminishes us. It creates hardened hearts. And hardened hearts don't have to do anything. They don't have to bear anything. Hope is a choice that requires discipline and practice and faith. And I want to say that that's why I'm a Unitarian Universalist. That's why I'm here today. I came in part because I knew I would find hope here. I would see hope here in the work you're doing, whether it's with SSEF or in your work to revitalize democracy or in your work for environmental justice, any of the important work you're doing for the world, I knew that I would find hope here. And these days, my greatest source of hope are the partners UUSC has the privilege of working with. I have seen the broken heart and brave hope of feminist leaders in Central America who risk their lives by exposing violence and impunity. I have seen the broken heart and brave hope of a community in Haiti building eco-villages from nothing. Women in Nicaragua, Nicaragua who are demanding safety at home and in the streets, of journalists in Honduras who are exposing their government's cruel policies and violent retributions at great personal risk. These are just a few of UUSC's partners who give me hope. So if you are feeling a little tug of despair, if you are in need of some hope today, I hope you will also find it in this work we share. They can call it a crime. They can pass laws that criminalize our values and our work for justice. They can tempt us with despair, with disregard, and with hate. But I promise you this, we will not stop. With broken hearts and brave hope, let us be charged found guilty.